Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Dave Walters. In today's episode, which happens to be our 2019 Christmas special, I'm joined by Gary Berkovich, who regular listeners will have heard before. Gary, could you introduce yourself to new listeners? Hi, Dave. Thanks very much. Yeah, so folks may have heard me on a couple of these in the past, but um, for those of you who don't know me, I, up until about uh, the 3rd of December, was a, a partner in our South African firm, and post that, I've actually joined the, the central team based in London. So I'm looking forward to a much colder Christmas than I was expecting. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so uh, you've obviously been welcomed by some reasonably seasonal weather, and given this is the last podcast before Christmas, we like it to have a seasonal feel. So so the first topic I'd like to talk about, and given it's the season of goodwill to all men and indeed women, um, I wondered whether it would be worth talking about uh, what was the accounting like for goodwill in Christmas's past? In Christmas's past. So the accounting for goodwill in Christmas's past was that we used to recognize it and then we, as most, most goodwill arises in Christmas and over time then, a very short space of time, it, it, it disappears. Come yeah. January, everyone's shouting bar humbug and <laughs> yeah. not so happy with each other. So in Christmas past, we used to write Goodwill off, Dave. We did. We, uh, in some cases, and, and if you go back to sort of legacy gap that I'm familiar with, UK gap, we, we wrote it off straight away to reserves, which, which got it out of the, out of the way altogether. Although that's not, that wasn't consistent. I mean, people had their own, their own interpretations, but quite often... Goodwill would would expire quite quickly and would, would disappear. What about the accounting for goodwill in Christmas present? Christmas present. Well, we've we've come a long way, Dave, and I think uh, after much deliberation, people decided this magical thing called goodwill. I mean, it makes feel people feel so good over Christmas. Why write it off straight away? Why don't we keep it around for I don't know indefinitely? So, uh, as most of our listeners know um, today, we we keep goodwill on the balance sheet until there is. Um, uh, well, not even an indicator. Every year we test to make sure that this, this goodwill happens to still be there and people are feeling the, the cheer and wonder of the business that they may have acquired. And it is only in very rare circumstances which you may find that we made a, a, a poor business decision back in the day or factors may have worked against us to demonstrate that this amazing goodwill is now no longer actually sustainable, in which case we would write it off. But unless that happens, hey, things are looking good. And, and I think I'm right in saying when we sort of to, uh, do surveys or when people have done surveys of, uh, of share prices for example and investors you know, typically the, the impairment of the goodwill doesn't have an impact on 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 share prices and, and on talking to investors I think a number have expressed a view that actually they, they had taken account of the fact that the goodwill had, had dissipated sometime in advance of the of the goodwill impairment charge so from an investor perspective uh, is it fair Gary to say that um, the goodwill, less the the impairment testing, typically doesn't give them hasn't given them much decision useful information. Yeah, I think that's what the evidence would show, Dave. And I think a lot of the time, much like the goodwill of Christmas, people want it to last potentially longer than it should maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. exist for. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the time, you know, companies are reluctant to acknowledge the fact that that wonder and cheer and goodwill from Christmas is maybe maybe evaporated a little bit earlier than they would have hoped. And I, I think you're probably right that. You know, the market is, is sometimes maybe a little bit uh, a little bit further ahead of, of where we may be when it comes time to report. So I think that's that's a fair a, a, a assumption, but I think it's probably also fair to say that that's not based on a huge amount of scientific research that you and I have done. Well, indeed. Uh, indeed. Um, but uh, there are many academics who, who have studied goodwill. But obviously, uh, 
continuing the sort of Charles Dickens theme here, A Christmas Carol, we, we looked at goodwill in Christmas past, goodwill in Christmas present. What about goodwill accounting in Christmas future? Well, that's a very good, a very good question, and I think we've we've been given a present from the ISB. I, I suspect they they will very close to Christmas or very shortly thereafter, as a post Christmas present, issue a discussion paper talking about this very thing. And I think some of the concepts in there are actually quite interesting in terms of how we might account for the goodwill of um, of Christmas future, and some of the um, some of the ideas they're thinking of. And I think again, from a US gap perspective, they've done something very similar as well is we're thinking again of coming full circle to a point where we may think about actually writing this amount off over time. That is probably the on the table at the moment as the as the next the next best thing we're thinking of. Now some may say it looks like we've done gone full circle all the way back to yeah. the goodwill of Christmas past. I, I don't think necessarily that, that the, the ISB is suggesting we would write it straight off to reserves. I think the idea is it's still recognized that it is an asset. Much like when you give your kids the present, that goodwill exists. There is definitely some economic benefit or resources as a result of all the goodwill you've done. I think the idea is that much like the presents you give to your kids, that that value or goodwill doesn't last forever. And in fact, in my household, it probably only lasts 24 hours (laughs) until the 26th of December. Um, But I think the idea is that it is a a lot of folks believe it is a wasting asset, actually, and that the, the value you acquire in a business that can't be identified or allocated to intangibles does not actually last forever. And, and even though it may be replaced by internally generating goodwill, that's no excuse not to actually reflect the fact that over time that asset you acquired is actually reducing. And so I think that will be the, the proposal that will come out from the ISB potentially um, as, as I think the option that people are thinking um, we might go down. We may see in the future goodwill being amortized like other non-current assets. Correct. Uh, so, so, uh, so how do you account for goodwill? Uh, I guess it's changing. But uh, so, so that's, uh, I think that's probably dealt with goodwill accounting. It's now time for a Christmas cracker joke, if you don't mind. I mean, <laughs> we have to, we, this is one of my favourites. So, so uh, Gary, how does Santa value his sleigh? I wouldn't know. Tell me. It's, uh, it's a net present value. <laughs> <laughs> now, the only reason I'm laughing is because on our script, it says laugh after Dave May's comment <laughs> about Santa and his sleigh. So Christmas is conventionally a time of I mean, peace, goodwill, presence and major cash outflows, particularly if if you've got what are technically known as cost centres or some other people call them children. So managing your cash flows over the Christmas season. Are there, a, are there any accounting topics associated with managing cash flows? Absolutely. Well, I'm just thinking, is there an accounting topic on bankruptcy, which is where I'm usually <laughs> yeah. yes, after Christmas? Yeah. But no, no, I'm thinking more around, um, you know, those major cash outflows might require an entity to enter into um, some top, some type of supplier financing arrangements. Uh, these are also known. Uh, some may know them as reverse factoring, supply chain financing, um, vendor payment programs. You know, and there's probably a thousand other complicated names that us accountants have given to these things to make ourselves feel uh, smart. Yeah, clever, clever and smart. Um, but basically, what what supplier financing is is a normally a tripartite arrangement. So. There's me on the one hand, and I'm I'm buying goods from a, a store, and I need to pay that store. Let's say I get credit terms. I mean, I'm I represent the entity here. Now, I might want to employ the services of an intermediary, commonly known as a bank or a financial institution, to achieve two things. The one is a commercial objective, which is I can now arrange for between myself and my supplier, we're on the same platform, so we can actually manage the payment process 
a lot more efficiently rather than me sending you know my your your creditors clerk calls my payments people and say hey this is the invoice number i'm like what invoice number no this is the reference number it's like but hang on you've got the wrong digit there you sure you talked the right so anyway it, it makes the payment process more efficient but i think from an accounting perspective what gets interest what gets interesting as well is it actually provides me as the entity or the the parent with uh, oftentimes differential payment terms. So whereas before I, I may have needed to pay my supplier or, or Hamleys back within 30 days, I get this intermediary known as the bank to pay Hamleys on my behalf and I maybe get 60, 90, 120 day terms and I might have to pay a little bit more interest or, or do something else related to that. So there's a lot of commercial benefits that it provides all the parties in the arrangement. I think where it creates... Ex- really exciting accounting <laughs> issues, um, which some listeners may have already worked out, is whether or not that credit that I had on my on my balance sheet, in other words, the accounts payable when I first purchased the toys or, mm. or, or the goods and services, does that continue to remain accounts payable or should that be classified as a loan? Mm. And obviously yeah. that's important because the investors you spoke about who are very clever at discovering you know, goodwill impairments may also be very interested in knowing that I'm financing my business not by working capital, but I've actually decided now to finance some of my accounts payable working capital via a longer-term loan in nature, which obviously changes the credit profile and credit risk of my business, which is important for investors to know. Excellent. And uh, and have there been developments in this area, or is it, is, is, is there a continuing theme here? Well, there's there's a well. I think I think there have been developments, but I think uh, you know we we issued a uh, an in depth on on the balance sheet classification a while back. I think the developments that have come across, if, if people have have caught on now to what the cash flow should look like when you enter into one of these arrangements. So if you think about it today, when I buy goods and services in the ordinary course of business, that's normally an operating cash outflow. Yes. I think the question is moving forward: should that continue to be an operating cash outflow when I may have financed? the purchase of my um, inventory or, or, or working capital via a longer term type of financing with the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so the options you have is you could say, for example, yeah, this continues to be an operating cash flow. I've just delayed the payment of when I make the payments. And there's an, a non-cash transaction that happens in between, between the bank paying the supplier. One might say that actually, yes, there's a, a non-cash transaction that's occurred because there was no cash flow from my business. It was all paid via the bank. But when I ultimately settle that payment, it's now to a bank over a longer period of time, which feels like a financing cash outflow. Yeah. Or you might get a third option, which uh, I believe is the correct answer, and that represents only my personal view, but which actually reflects, I think, the dual purpose of what's going on, which is you, there is a settlement of the operating cash flow. It was just done on your behalf by the bank. So there is an operating cash outflow when, when, the, when your supplier is settled. But you've then financed that operating cash outflow with a corresponding financing cash inflow from the bank, yeah. which at a later point in time, when you actually pay the amount to the bank, you settle the corresponding financing cash outflow. Now, this is a, a topic that is currently hotly debated at the yeah. moment. And as I say, I don't think we've we've quite landed on what we think the right answer is, or at least at the time of, re- of recording this podcast. Yeah. Maybe post-Christmas, we'll, we'll, all, we'll all know what the right answer is. But I guess... The takeaway from this is that if you are over the Christmas period needing to enter into supplier financing arrangements, don't just think about the balance sheets. I think you really need to think about how you want to present this in your in your cash flow statement as well. And I guess, actually, as with all things cash flow, if you've made a judgment on how this, this is best presented, make sure you have clearly disclosed what you have done so that the reader of the accounts understands the, the, 
the the policy that you have adopted. Yeah, I, I can't I can't reiterate that enough, Dave. I mean, if I had just explained the judgments or policy that I'd made when I chose to buy my wife that that Christmas present, I think I'd be in a lot less trouble than I am right now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And talking of trouble uh, and um, uh, supply financing arrangements, uh, I, I think it is also very clear that uh, if uh, if entities are significant users of supplier financing arrangements, regulators around the world are very keen for those to be appropriately disclosed in financial statements. Uh, and certainly here in the UK, we have uh, we've had a, a number of uh, alerts come to us from from regulators to say that they they are uh, concerned that not all of them are being disclosed. And it's one way to guarantee a, a Christmas greeting from a regulator is to is to have uh, failed to disclose material supplier financing. So uh, uh, with that, uh, with that uh, seasonal message, I guess it's probably worth moving on to another favourite topic of, of this time of year. So, I mean, the Walters family have just bought a Christmas tree for, for £60. It's been, it's been growing for 15 years, apparently. So Christmas trees, as the grower of a Christmas tree, how does it get accounted for? Well, that's a great question, Dave. So I think as the grower of a Christmas tree, you probably are working with the um, agricultural standards. So... Uh, you're probably looking at um, IS41 there, and as it's growing, we, we default to fair value. So uh, you would have been measuring your Christmas trees at, at, at fair value. Over 15 years. Over 15 years. And then at the point that they are, are chopped out the ground and turned into the amazing Walter's Christmas tree that would be, you would you would de-recognize it at fair value, which is fair value less cost to sell. So you wouldn't recognize a loss on the point in time where they, where they sold the Christmas tree to the Walters so, family. So, so they sell it to, to me. And then in my personal financial statements, assuming I'm applying IFRS... Uh, you know, I, I recognize it at cost. Then I put my tackiest Christmas decorations on it. So is it all, is it immediately impaired? Well, I haven't had a Christmas at the Walters family yet, Dave. So I, I can't I can't tell. But you may want to look at some some indicators. And and there's a from what you've said, if you use the words like tacky, for example, I would say you probably have a good indicator, and you may want to at least consider it for impairment. Okay, but otherwise, uh, it will be an asset in our household for a few weeks, and and then it will leave pine needles all over the floor that we will be discovering over many months and then at some stage it'll get appropriately recycled or indeed burnt as, 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 as fuel say it serves, it serves a dual purpose but actually christmas tree market is evolving it, i read an article recently i was on a flight and there are businesses around around the world now that are leasing growing christmas trees to households so does that take them into the leasing standard well, for the for the grower or for the for the person who's for the Walters family financial <laughs> yeah. statements. Well, let's go for the grower first of all. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if they're providing a right of use and it's a physical asset, then yes, I think you would you would be at the scope of the leasing standard. And I can understand that because you know, sixty pounds may not feel like a lot of money to the Walters family, but coming from South Africa, which I recently have, that's about you know a gazillion rand. So I can understand why <laughs> folks might want to enter into some form of leasing transaction rather than spending the giant cash outflow. So I, I think the logic behind it is clearly it's uh, it's more slightly more beneficial for the environment, and as long as the trees get spruced up on their return, everyone will be okay. <laughs> okay, right. So you don't chop the tree, in other words, then you, yeah, it comes with the roots and all. Comes with the roots and all. Yes, you, you look after it, you, care for it, and you, then you give it back when you're done. You, you look after it and hopefully don't kill it. Yeah. Uh, but I, would assume, I would assume the, 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 the lessor would need to make uh, due allowances for 
for product that didn't actually get returned in a in a in a living state. Rehabilitation provisions and all no, that. That's right. Stuff, yeah. that's right. It could get quite complicated. We, we'll be looking forward to more detailed accounting guidance from the Christmas Tree Growers Association in due course. <laughs> Moving on, I think from from agriculture. Although you know there are other aspects of agriculture, reindeer and turkeys, but you know, I think we probably we can probably draw a veil over those and move to perhaps a more sensitive topic. Rights for return for unwanted presence. So applying the right to return guidance, assuming Santa has, has, has delivered stuff and some of it has not been quite what the recipient intended and they, they want to return it. How does Santa account for that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dave, and one that IFRS 15 covered. And, and, and I think a very relevant question, because I think, my, you know, probably much like yourself, I'm, I'm sitting with a couple of presents that are waiting to go back to Santa, having made an incorrect judgment or assumption with respect <laughs> to what my children were expecting. But I think, you know, uh, before IFRS 15 came out, there was, there was diversity. But these days, I think what Santa should do is recognize the fact that he shouldn't book revenue, first of all, for those presents that he thinks are coming back. That's, yeah. that's the starting point of this whole discussion. You know, we, we don't book revenue and we don't think we're going to be entitled to the consideration. So... You don't book the revenue. In other words, you reverse the revenue and the, and the corresponding contract asset. But that leaves you with the question of, well, now my, my margins are all messed up as Santa. You know, you may actually go out of business because if he's still got the cost of sales, but he's reversed the revenues, unfortunately, you know, the elves are not getting their Christmas presents or bonus this year. So luckily, IFRS 15 was to the rescue and said, well, we will, we will fix up your margin by saying, you know what, if you can't book the revenue then logically you're going to get this good back. So you can book an asset on your balance sheet, which reflects your rights to receive aforementioned good that is going to be returned. And so you go kind of debit right to return asset, credit cost of sales, thus fixing Santa's GP margin and thus saving the Christmas elves bonus for December. And, and this right of return asset is basically inventory, isn't it? Yes, yes and no. It's, you don't quite have the inventory yet, Dave, so yeah. it represents the future inventory you may get, Excellent. but it doesn't actually represent the physical inventory you currently have. But on, on the assumption, let's say the example here is a particularly naff Christmas sweater. <laughs> okay. So, for, the, so, for those of us international, because I'm, I'm still international, if naff means not so great. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so it's not the sort of thing that, that a sort of supermodel would wear. Right. Um, you know, so it's garish colours, uh, a, a, a pattern that you last saw on wallpaper in the early 1970s. You know, it's not something that's necessarily desirable. The right of return asset presumably has to take account of what additional value might be realised for that when it comes back. Correct. So, so again, much like Santa and much like IFRS 15, when we, they thought about that and they said, well, if you think when the asset that comes back, this, this right of return asset that comes back, if you are not going to be able to recover the value that you've recognized it at, in other words, the original, the original carrying value of that asset, you need to write it down in advance of actually receiving that asset. So if you've got a, a garish sweater coming back and you know that there's not a person on the planet who'll actually want that after Christmas, you may actually need to write it down to some nominal value or potentially zero. Or, or, or alternatively, identify a particularly... Uh, good customer for Christmas sweaters, which is me. I, I've got quite a collection of them, and uh, uh, the, the more garish, the better. So I might be quite a useful source. But that's guess... probably the most useful bit of information we've given our listeners over <laughs> yeah. this podcast, Dave. But but, but but I guess actually for for the uh, for this this um, right to return return asset, in assessing how you what, what, how you would write it down, you need to think about where where are the markets for it, what might be the route to realizing any value at all. Absolutely. That's spot on. Excellent. We 
probably almost finished our time, but I just wondered whether there was something in relation to Christmas and, and the... We've been sort of implying that the Father Christmas receives revenue for the delivery of presents, but I think it's generally recognised that Santa is actually delivering presents for, for free, which is rather like uh, some share-based payment awards I have seen in the past, where they are awarded and you can't immediately identify what they were for, what was the value received in return. Have we got accounting guidance for that? Oh, Dave, that's a very complicated question. I guess the starting point is, you know, is, is, is Santa the one delivering them or is he just acting as an agent on my behalf <laughs> to deliver? And I hope there's no kids listening because clearly I don't buy the presents. You know, yeah. this is all Santa done by the elves. But, you know, assuming that Santa and the elves are actually making these presents and they're acting as principal in this arrangement, I think that's a very good question, Dave, because I think we like to think that things are free, but the reality is that nothing in life is free. And, and I think generally when you give away a good or a service being a, a share or a you know, share-based payment for no immediately identifiable good and service, we, we shouldn't forget the, the old interpretation, was it Ifric 8? Indeed, I think it was. Yeah, which, which then got subsumed into IFRS 2 that says, yeah. even if you may think you've given away something for free, you probably need to look very, very hard and find the unidentifiable goods and services that you may have given away and assume that there has been some value that's transferred. And if it doesn't result in an asset, well, then it results in an expense. Much like the goodwill that I generate with my kids when I give them their presents for free every year, it lasts fleetingly. (laughs) And so uh, so hits the the family P&L account uh, very quickly. Very quickly. But uh, I guess in relation to Santa, he is receiving an unidentifiable good or service, which is basically the, the good behavior of the children throughout the year, or, or maybe throughout the two or three weeks immediately prior to Christmas, which is perhaps a more realistic expectation. It's a great, great challenge, Dave. But I think much like many of these unidentifiable goods and services, the challenge is you do not control the asset. <laughs> and so although you're hoping for the goodwill of your children, the reality is is you do not control them yes. at all. Yes, I know all about interests uncontrolled. I have many children. Uh, uh, and uh, with that, thank you very much, Gary, for your contribution to this uh, this Christmas podcast. Um, I, I wish you and indeed our listeners very well for the for the festive season and I uh, hope everyone has a has a good break. So you've been listening to PwC's IFRS podcast. If you want more information on technical matters, PwC Inform is, is available online or pwc.com forward slash IFRS. And in the meantime, happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.